Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. We return to our episode on the matriarchy of old Europe. In part two, we discuss the sacred aspect of agriculture and skulls. It's pretty interesting. Join me, Don Sam Alden and Vicki Noble, as we continue our discussion. Once you get a clash with a dominion-based civilization, let's say, that's where you start getting these kinds of market sense of value. Would that be the case? And if so, how does a matriarchal society withstand that well, conflict? They didn't. Well, they didn't. I mean, that's right. the thing. they didn't. And the fact that there are remnants of matriarchy all over the world still today is just, uh, you know, it's an incredible tribute to the resilience of people trying to save what they love. Because it's it's a miracle at this point. Globe, the globalism has sort of finished off the process. You know, there's right. there's a wonderful book that I I don't know if I can think of the name of it. Unfortunately, maybe we can put it up later. Um, it's it's written about uh, refugees and it's written about uh, people who are displaced and so on, which is much of my own scholarly uh, work. And this guy's talking about contemporary cultures in Asia. South Asia. And, and he's talking about people who do not want to be part of the state. You know, they don't want to be brought into the state. It's like mm. Native Americans. Um, in fact, uh, there's, there's another wonderful book by uh, Jerry Mander from the 80s called uh, The, hmm, oh dear, The Something <laughs> the Sacred. I'll, I'll look this one up too, but look up Jerry Mander and uh, his book was wonderful. You know, he interviewed uh, Native people and, and understood that they don't want to be part of our stupid idea of progress. They are trying to hold on to what they love. They're trying to hold on to this amazing connection with Mother Earth and with the invisible beings that we have uh, left behind in Western culture. Yeah, there's a wonderful author, um, Ed McGaugh, M-C-G-A-A, uh, his uh, his native name is Eagle Man, and um, he wrote a series of books in the nineties. I want to say um, <laughs> that uh, that he's Oglala Sioux by uh, by uh, birth, and um, he wrote books talking about the seven sacred ceremonies of the Sioux, and he ran sweat lodges for non-native peoples and his idea was because a lot of indian culture is very insular and they don't allow outsiders and his um his point of view was if we think these this way of life is so so important this ceremony that we do is so important then why are we not teaching it to as many people as we can to try to you know encourage the growth of these ways of thinking so he would um he sort of nicknamed the non-native peoples that followed him his rainbow tribe 
Uh-huh. And, um, and, you know, he would teach uh, the ceremonies and he would lead ceremony for non-Native peoples as a way to try to sort of spread the gospel of this earth-centered way of living. Well, that's very generous considering what happened to Native people when white Indeed. people on this continent. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Right. I want to, on, on that, in that sense, I want to circle back a little bit to the war uh, aspect of this, because what I'm hearing about markets and what I'm hearing about society is impacted obviously directly and at its root by this shift and the ability for a outside culture to come into a matriarchy and impose something upon it or destroy it or scatter it. So in that sense, where do you, where has it been found in matriarchal studies warfare's beginning in a sense do we have a sense of when these kinds of civilizations began to spread across the world obviously it would have been in a lot of different locations yes i'd like to talk a little bit about that even before because what you're really naming now i think is the long development of agriculture and the beginning of the neolithic civilizations because right. when people really settled down and started living in large numbers together in in places that sometimes we've heard of uh you know uh we talked a little uh last time about a place called Ein Ghazal in Jordan very early neolithic uh city you might say i mean these are not cities in an urban sense they're more like communal communes you know uh, where people gathered together and practiced uh, sustainable agriculture, what we would call permaculture maybe today. Right, and, yeah. And owned owned the all of the fruits of the uh, harvest and so on, uh, owned that in common. And the, the reason I would like to talk a little bit about agriculture is that progressives and modern uh, contemporary organic farmers and people like that don't understand very well the uh, history of agriculture. And I often hear it said, for about the last 20 years this has been in vogue, um, that, that the beginning of agriculture, you know, was somehow the beginning of the end, you know, the beginning of our demise. There's a kind of glorification of the hunter-gatherer, which is really just guys who are uh, enamored of the idea of the hunter. Right. Um, but there's no focus at all on the gatherer. Um, and then the move to agriculture is so clearly female-centered that uh, I, that may be part of the reason it's kind of erased in the contemporary discourse. But what really irks me is that they make agriculture bad from the beginning as if it resembled in any way our modern agribusiness and the harm that it causes all over the world. There's no relationship. The early agriculture was, in fact, the only way to understand the cultures of old Europe is to understand the sacred way in which agriculture was practiced for at least 4,000 years. And I would assume that it was more like 20,000 years because the agriculturalists, you know, they, they didn't just happen suddenly in 9,000 BCE or whatever, uh, which is sort of was the earlier story. story. 
they mm-hmm. um, they developed over time and they foraged and settled over a long period of time. One one author called it a process rather than an event. I like right. that pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they moved seasonally, and later they these are Natufian people that we hear about first of all in the coming into the Jordan Valley uh, along the the migration routes from Africa. And let's say maybe in 15,000 BCE and 10,000 BCE, you know, coming coming into that area with already having established a certain amount of relationship with uh, at least the harvesting of wild grains and, and foods, uh, but also some cultivation. And once they settled in Jericho and Ein Gazal in the Jordan Valley, they uh, they really established agriculture in a way that we look back on and call the beginning of agriculture. Um, and what they were doing, they they domesticated wheat. They they moved up uh, eventually into Turkey, into what we call Anatolia, Syria, and Turkey, and um, and that's where they established the sites that we're most familiar with uh, from. The, I suppose from the British archaeology, Mellard, and then uh, the British archaeologists who are in Turkey right now uh, studying Chateau Huyuk. Um, mm. It was a place where, but the, but Ein Gazal and Chateau Huyuk have many things in common. Uh, they had, they were already doing things in their funerary practices that were terribly interesting. You know, always there's this secondary burial practice. Um, Vicky, before we before we go there, just so for the listener, because you, I, Don, and I know about Ein Gazal and Chattahuyuk, but can you just tell them what that is a little bit more, and then? Well, they're you know, the first places. They're the first places we know of where people settled in large groups, thousands of people living in at these sites. And, and this is in Anatolia, in modern day Turkey. Uh, Ein Gazal is in the Jordan Valley in the Middle East. Well, I'm sorry, and Shad, but Shadahuik is in and Turkey, Ein Gazal is in Jordan. Yeah, it's in Turkey. And Ein Gazal is earlier, <clears throat> just by a little, but uh, it's <clears throat> it's where we first see uh, large uh, goddess figurines, uh, life-size. They were made of plaster. I think we might have mentioned these in an earlier segment. Um, they, they, they're obviously cult figures, you know, they're not small handheld goddesses or anything like that. And uh, they would have been dressed and uh, given hair and all that, but we just see them uh, as the kind of uh, structure, the plaster structure, and these big green malachite eyes, you know, that mm. look there in trance. <coughs> and one of those, uh, several actually, of those uh, statues are double goddesses. And so I included them in my book, The Double Goddess. That's what got me first interested in the place. But they also had a cult of the skulls, you know, they call it a skull cult. And this was typical uh, of the Middle Eastern, early Neolithic. And then in, at Shadalhuyuk uh, and other sites in Turkey around Shadalhuyuk, they also did the same thing. They plastered skulls after the the um, the secondary part of the burial, you know, where the bones are saved. They took the skull, they plastered it, they made inlaid eyes, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're just amazing. And uh, there's some way that they, the, the archaeologists say they worshipped skulls. I don't know if that's quite right, but but they certainly venerated their ancestors. 
Um, I am. Can I insert a little personal thought here? Um, I I remember reading that and and thinking about how they would, you know, they would, uh, the skulls, all of the flesh would, of course, either fall away or be scraped away. Uh And then they would rebuild these skulls and put eyes in them. It's almost as if they were sort of trying to recapture the person whose skull this was and then they kept them in their in their houses in their you know in their places of worship in their communal centers and I remember back to when my mom died and um I apologize if I get a little emotional here but um I remember when my mom died she she died in my home um I was lucky enough to care for her the last six weeks of her life and um and I remember that the moment that she died was not as traumatic for me as the moment when the funeral home came and took, took her away yeah. her body. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that even when she was dead, she was somehow still there for me. Uh-huh. But when they took away her body and I realized that I would never hold her hand again, I would never be able to stroke her hair again, I would never see her again. That was the moment that I fell apart. In a culture where women are the religious preceptors for the funerary rituals, you would have had the task of bathing her body and anointing her with oils and incenses that are preservative. And uh, there's no embalming in these other cultures. You know, it's only... Something we do in the West is so bizarre. If we ever had the capacity to look at our own funerary ritual <laughs> with any kind of clarity, we would see that it's just bizarre. We're trying as hard as we can using all of these, using cement and metal and all these things to try to keep the body from decaying. You know, yeah. the ancient people, the goddess religion and the ancient these ancient cultures, the, the entire thing, as Maria Gambudis put it into words, is is birth, death, and regeneration. It's right. cyclic reality. It's not exactly. linear. And they didn't, they worshipped, they worshipped the cycles of life, and they participated in them. And we would never have let someone come and take our mother away from the house. And yeah, you know, do that stuff to her. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's horrifying. But only if you can step outside of the normal uh, experience of being an American, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I feel that she was cremated. Um, and I kind of feel that way about her urn. That, that, that of course. Yeah, that there, that like, I will, I will go and talk to her. Yes. At her, at her urn. And, you know, and it, it, <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel this connection. A wonderful friend of mine um, told me that even though the person is gone, the relationship is not gone. Right. And I thought that was incredibly profound yeah. because I am still in relationship with my mother, even though she's dead. And yeah. so, of course, I want to talk to her, you know. So well, I totally get how having a plastered skull 
in your house of your ancestor would be incredibly comforting. Yes, it's on the mantle, right? Yeah, yeah. They would feel like yeah. they are they're not completely gone. There's there's part of them, literally part of them, yeah. that is still with you. Yeah. And uh, I so I find that, you know, not disgusting or horrifying or or gruesome in any way. It's it's about connection. And one really interesting connection cross culturally and across eons of time is that uh, in the yogini tradition in India, uh, the, the, there were yogini temples built in about uh, from the 8th to the 12th centuries in this era. And they're a little bit of a mystery, and a couple of scholars have written about them, and that's about it. But the, uh, one of the things they've told us, and, and they relate it to the teachings of Tantra and Shakta, Shakta Tantra, um, is that yoginis and skulls go together. Hmm. And yoginis love skulls. And so when I first read that, I thought I had to scratch my head, you know, yoginis love skulls. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's so foreign, isn't it? But at this point in my research, after all these decades, I just think it's fabulous. Of yeah. course, yoginis love skulls. They, they used to do the funerary practices. Yoginis are a late, late, uh, archetypal uh, expression of the women and the funerary rituals that we have always performed since time immemorial. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get you off track there. Yeah. Really, that's a profound aspect of it. That ends part two of our episode on the matriarchy of old Europe. We'll pick it up next in part three. I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb.